Today on the podcast, we welcome my friend Rudy Rubio. Rudy's an Acts 29 pastor in Southern California. And I recently heard him speak at our Acts 29 National Conference, and he shared a little bit of his story. And so I reached out to him and I just said, Hey, man, would you be interested in coming and telling your story? To the Vine Church and just engaging in a conversation with us, and thankfully he agreed. And so I'm excited for you to get to know Pastor Rubio and hear his story. Pastor Rudy, man, it's uh, it's a pleasure to have you with us on the Vine Church podcast, and. Um, Man, when you spoke at the national conference, I was intrigued by your story, and I am, um, yeah, very much so. Um, and I'm one who's just very interested in people, and uh, especially people from different cultures. And it sounds like you and I, you know, g- grew up very, very differently. I'm a I'm a s- small town kid from Midwest, um, as as white bread as it comes, and um, and uh, and you, based on what I heard you sh- share. Man, you come from a different world than me, man. Could we just maybe start there? I'd love to hear from you about your upbringing and, and where you're from and and some of your story. Is that cool if we get into that? Yeah, definitely. So I'm I'm Mexican, right? I was I was um I'm first I'm second generation here. My mom and dad were born in Mexico. Uh, I was I was born here in, in East LA. Uh, sorry for all the background noise. Okay, it's all right. It's just like I'm in the middle of the hood here. All kind of stuff going on, um, but. Yeah, man, I was, uh, you know, first generation born here, which makes me second generation Mexican here in the United States. Um, I was a latchkey kid, you know, you know what a latchkey kid is? Oh, for sure. My, my wife was yeah, too. Not, not many people around here. I'll tell them I was a latchkey kid and I have to give them like the full definition. No, so no. I was, I was the eldest. That meant that I had to do everything on my own, you know, watch over my, my younger brothers and sisters, as well as let myself in and have all my chores and homework done by the time my parents got home from work. Because they were there, they were just always busy, you know, yep. working to try to provide. Yep. Uh, we grew up in, in, in South LA, Southeast LA, poor part of, of, of urban LA. Why the did they, why did your parents pick uh, LA? I don't know. They, they, um, they moved into East LA probably because that's where we have family. And okay. um, the East LA is like historically known for being predominantly Mexican American, you know, uh, and now just about this whole area is like predominantly Mexican American, okay. you know. And so you uh, were you parents, were you were bilingual from the day. I mean, you don't have any memories of not being bilingual. I would imagine. No, Spanish was my first language. Okay, so I didn't I didn't I didn't learn English until I got to school. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, my my dad would not allow me to speak English in the home. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, I think y'all call them noogies, right? <laughs> yeah, where you rub someone's head. Is that what they're called, noogies? <laughs> yeah, yeah. For us in Spanish, the, def- the, the you say noogie by saying coscorron. Okay. Or coscorron. It's like a noogie. So my dad, if he would hear us speaking English in the home, like that dude was like Mr. Elastic, like way before the Incredibles. You know what I mean? Like we could be like in <laughs> two rooms away and, and he would hear us speaking English and his arm would just come around the corner, stretch like 15 feet and just upside the head, you know? Yep. Why, why do you think he was so him. passionate about that? I'll, I'll tell you why. He, I was so, I, I used to hate him for that. Right. I didn't hate him, but I hated him for that action because all my friends in school spoke English. My little neighbors spoke English and we spoke Spanish, but we watched TV in English. Our cartoons were in English, you know, predominantly. So it was just easier to, to, to flow in English. But my dad never wanted us to lose our culture. 
Right. He never wanted us to lose our, our mother tongue or our language. Yep. He always insisted that we would go further in life if we spoke more than one language and were bilingual. Amen. Which was 100% true. Amen. But at the time, the back of my head never really appreciated it when I would get hit upside the head when I didn't <laughs> expect it, you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah, man, I was I was um, more about myself growing up. Uh, I used to get bullied as a kid. You know, I was the big, fat, um, brainiac kid where I was really smart. I used to excel academically, but was never really quite able to fit in. Okay. You know, I, I didn't really fit in in any specific group. Wasn't a jock. Wasn't I was just like a nerd. You know. So when I get into 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 junior high school, into middle school, I, I really wanted to fit in somewhere. And the people that accepted me were the local street gang. You okay. know, uh, somebody. I, I started doing something stupid in class, and you know, you do something dumb in class, you make the class laugh, and everybody starts patting you on the back and giving you attaboys. and mm-hmm. and that was like a that was an adrenaline for me. You know, it was it was like a drug. It was like, oh man, these people they actually they they notice me, they see me, they they hear me. I'm 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 there. You know, right, right. Um, and that's kind of what what what, what kind of kicked it off. Um, and as, as things progressed, I noticed that, um, these guys started getting into fights. So I would, I would jump into fights just to have their back. Right. And then before you know it, I start getting chased and jumped because they think I'm a part of the gang that they belong to. So I figured if I'm going to get beat up for belonging to this gang that I don't even belong to. I might as well belong to it and make it worth it. You know? So what age was um, this when you started getting 13. involved? 13? 13. And would yeah. you say your upbringing in your neighborhood was, was violent? Like the, was there yeah there was a lot of a lot of gang did you did you um did you like do you remember being fearful no because it was just a part of life so i'll tell you a story a quick story i'll make it quick when i was about 10 years old 10 11 years old um my my, one of my friends lived in these apartments next to us and they had a pool right they had a community pool and we were at that community pool and there was this kid it was a white kid like one of the few white people in, in the community he was about 13, 14 years old. We were in the pool. And he was kind of bullying people around. And um, one of the times I jumped off the diving board and did a bomb, you yeah, know? Yep. And I accidentally, I accidentally hit the kid. It, it wasn't on purpose. Yep. But, man, he started cussing me out and saying all kinds of stuff about my mama. And I felt pressed to push back. So um, we ended up meeting on the street. And it was like, like two roosters just going in circles, right? Just circling, circling, you know? chest to chest shoulder to shoulder waiting for somebody to make the first move right but we were both so scared nobody ever did my dad was across the street drinking beer with his with his buddies mm-hmm. and after about 20 minutes of that he came across yanked me up from my neck and he said either you're gonna fight or i'm gonna put on music for you to dance <laughs> he goes and if you fight and get whooped prepare to catch another whooping at home wow I'm 10 or 11 years old. This kid is like 14. Right. We're about the same size, but he's much older than me. Right. Well, we ended up getting into a fight. I got the best of him. Um, he went home and told his family that he had gotten jumped and beat up by some Mexican kid. And next thing you know, his whole family starts coming to my house. Uh, my dad runs across the street with his buddies. And before you know it, it's like an all out brawl. Wow. Like there's like 30, 40 people outside fighting. Wow. That, that's what I was exposed to as, as, as a kid, you know? Gotcha. So pride, machismo. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, so you get turned on to just the Latino gangs in, in, uh, in your neighborhood. 
yeah, there wasn't too many. I mean, there was there was black kids there, but it was predominantly Mexican Americans, predominantly Mexicans in that in that community. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as I as I go to, we ended up moving from where we were at closer to South LA, closer to Watts in a city called Huntington park. And that's where I, where I, I got into the gang. And then there was more black people around there and some were alliances, some were business partners and some were flat out enemies. Yep. You know? And it was, was the gang, uh, I mean, was, was there any white people in your upbringing at all? Yeah. They were in black and white cars driving around. Gotcha. The community. Yep. Just cops. Gotcha. gotcha. <laughs> and teachers and teachers. Yep. So your culture that you were raised in is mainly Latino and black. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. That's good. Just to give some context. And, and so describe your high school years. Like what, how did that progress? Non-existent. All my high school was done in jail. So at the age of 13, shortly after getting to the gang, uh, I started getting arrested and at first, they would let me go. They would sign, let my parents sign me out, and then I'd have to go to you know juvenile court. Uh, eventually, the judge got tired of seeing me there, and he locked me up. And I went to a county probation camp for a year. I got out, and three and a half weeks later, went right back. Only this time, I ended up going to the California Youth Authority uh, for assault with deadly weapon. And I was there till about two weeks before I turned 18 years old. Wow. So hold up. Pretty, your your pretty dad, your dad is present. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So your dad is present in your life and, um, and he's not messing around. And mm-hmm. I would imagine that like you're getting into trouble. How did that affect your relationship with your parents? When I started, when I, when I started getting into trouble, my dad, um, he was there, but it's like, he wasn't there emotionally. Like, I never had a good relationship with my dad to where he, he taught me the ways of being a man. He was just the typical, classic, rough and tough, machista Mexican, like just real macho, you know? Okay. Um, wasn't very loving, wasn't abusive, yeah. uh, but wasn't very loving. Um, made sure I got good grades. Um, they, they never had a complaint in that department. Um, but he just wasn't there as a, as a father, the way I try to be now with my kids. Right. You know, and, and but you get, you get just, locked up and... Do you remember yeah. any like conversations of them just being like, dude, what are you getting into? Like, well, how is this happening? I, I instantly went from being a boy to becoming a man. Okay. You know, um, my dad and I ended up getting into a physical altercation one time when he put hands on me. Yep. Uh, I, I, sn- I mean, I had it coming. I snuck out of the bathroom. I snuck out of the bedroom through the alley. went to go party with my friends. And I was halfway through the window sneaking back in <laughs> when I just started getting drilled on. Yeah. And it was my dad. So yep. reaction, I just started swinging back. Yep, you know, yep. Um, and, and then that kind of that was my 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 coming out as a man, where he now had a respect for me, right? No more as his young punk kid, but as a man who was making grown up decisions, and he was treating me as a man. Gotcha. You know, gotcha. Um, and and he and he and he game started giving me advice. He started, you know, trying to help me take better paths, but he wasn't the greatest example for me yep. to follow. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So, man, you you spent uh, like basically juvenile detention centers your whole high school career. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but when I got out of when I got out of the California Youth Authority just a few weeks before I turned eighteen, it was too late to go back to school. So what I did was I signed up for my GD, and as soon as I turned eighteen, I took and scored in the top three percent in the country. Wow. You know, um, and just 
it's like every time I got out of jail, I just took it a step higher, got involved with worse things on a much larger scale. Um, always heard people talking about God. You know, we grew up culturally Catholic. Sure. Uh, you know what that means? Oh, for sure. The Mexican culture, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church is just steep and rooted in, in, in the Hispanic culture, you right. know? Right. Um, but never really heard the gospel, never really talked about faith. It was just boxes that we checked off at, at you know, Easter and the day of the Virgin of Guadalupe and, and, right. and Christmas and and during Lent, we never ate meat on Fridays and, you know, stuff like that. So what? So you're, uh, you're in your late teens, early 20s. Where did that take you? Deeper and deeper. Um, I, if you saw the video, I ended up getting arrested for a murder. Um, there was a bunch of us got into a gang fight. Somebody died. Um, and the guy who did it, we just, you know, we just kept quiet. You don't snitch, you know. So when he ended up taking, and taking the, the, the blame for it, we got released. I was out for a few more months, and it was just—it was a, a, a revolving door. Um, at about the age of 24, um, I was involved with the cartels, with the Mexican mafia, doing big drug deals. One of them was a setup. Got set up by the DEA. Got caught with $285,000 cash and about 35 pounds of methamphetamine. Was this like El Chapo area era? Uh, no, this was way before El Chapo. This was 1997. Okay, gotcha. Um, interesting. So, man, yeah. so so you're 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 in deep in that lifestyle. Like, what what do you, what was the allure for you? Like, why was this? Like, why was like, for example, the detention center not a deterrent? Like, man, I got locked up, uh, my life taken away from me for four years, but who cares? Yeah. Like, I'm getting back in this life. Yeah. Like, what was your mindset? Because like, why was this so attractive to you at the time? Because I was somebody. I, I was somebody. I, I mattered. You had an identity. People, people looked exactly. And, and that's, that's a part of my testimony later on when I became a, when I became a Christian. Uh, I, 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 I built up this facade of who I always wanted to be but never really was. Mm -hmm. you know. And the more layers I would add to it, the tougher I would become, the meaner I would become, the more respect and fear and admiration I had in the streets. And it was, it was a drug in itself, you know, the adrenaline, the attention, the women, the fear, the respect on the streets. We're talking, we're talking late eighties and early nineties when it was like LA was one of the craziest places in the world Yeah. during the, 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 the major gang wars of the eighties and nineties. Yep. yep. So many people didn't make it through that. So you know? what are you like uh, mid forties right now? I'm 40. I just turned 48. Okay. Yeah. So month. I'm 40, I'm 44. Um, that helps put it in context. Yeah, man. So you're you're getting in deep with this, and then you go back to prison for they pin the murder on you, or I get out. I get out from that. Um, I, I went back to to prison for um, for a gun charge. Get out. That's when I get into this setup by the DEA. I get arrested with all this dope and 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 all this uh, money. But there's a twist to the plot. I got released by mistake three days later. Interesting. You never hear I that. Released by mistake. Uh, yeah. You I never hear about mistake. that. Yeah, I got released by mistake three days later. So I did what anybody, what any other, you know, red-blooded Mexican would do. I went right back to Mexico. And and I and I hid out there for about five or six years because I was on LA's Most Wanted. Uh, there was like wanted posters of me all over the place. No way. Uh, and I went to... Huh? I said, no way. That's crazy. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to send you a, a picture of, of it. I, I, 
I post it on my social media. I keep it in my Bible just to remind me where, where God has delivered me from. You wow. Know? Amen. Um, yeah. So I, I went to Sinaloa, which is like the drug cartel capital of Mexico. Right. Um, where El Chapo is from. Exactly. Yep. Um, and, and I'm hiding out in Sinaloa for about a year with family. Uh, got tired of it. And I'm ready to turn myself back in at the border. And my mom said, no, don't do that. We have family in, in Ensenada. Have you ever heard of Ensenada? No. Ensenada is just below uh, south of Tijuana, which is right on the border. Okay. And I said, okay, let's check it out. And I ended up staying there because of my English in a tourist zone. I was able to get a job pretty quickly. Um, I started moving up fast. Um, and I was able to remake my life. Like I literally remade my life, you know. All the things I, I had, hadn't done before I was able to do it now in a legitimate way, hmm. even though I was under an assumed identity. Um, met my wife, got married, had kids, uh, was down there for about five, six years. And then I wanted to give my kids a shot at the American dream. Yeah. I wanted my kids to have a chance for financial aid and to get a scholarship and to go to a good college and, and all that. So I took a chance and I came back and I was doing okay for a while. And then the gang and the connections found out I was back and I was allured. You know those, those, those cartoons where somebody's baking a pie and you could see the, the fragrance waves and it hooks yeah. into somebody's nose. And exactly. <laughs> yep. that, that, that's, that's kind of what happened to me, you know? Uh, only it wasn't a pie. It was, it was the old lifestyle. And I got in even deeper than before, like way deeper. But you're and married and you have kids. And yeah, that's the difference now. Now I'm married and I got kids. Um, and I professed to love my wife and kids above all, but my actions weren't demonstrating that, you yeah. know, I, I was still more concerned with my perception and how people on the streets would see me. Yep. And, and that's, that, that's, that, that was my compass. That was my, my, my compass that determined which way I was going. You know, that was the bar, what the streets thought of me, mm -hmm. you know? So you moved back to the same exact like area where you were raised same exact area, same okay. exact place I was living before I left. Same wow. people, same community, same everything. So how long were you gone? Like six or seven years? About five or six years. Yeah. Yeah, it was 1997 when I left and I came back um, 2000, the end of 2002, beginning of 2003. And then, so at, after five, six years, the, the authorities just aren't, they're not concerned about you or you just kind of hid out or you just kind of kept a low profile. I was, I was hiding out. I wasn't doing the same things originally. Um, I had a, a, a really good job working as an environmental engineer for a major construction company, just doing really well for myself, but slowly but surely got sucked right back into it. I wouldn't, uh, I would stay away from the city where those police were yep. or I would just go on the outskirts. You know, uh, I would carry my brother's ID with me cause we look a lot alike just gotcha. in case I got pulled over. Um, until he started getting in trouble, and it was worse to have his idea than it was to carry my own. <laughs> oh my word! So you're like late twenties here. Yes, exactly. Okay, exactly. And, and so you um, get in deep. What does in deep mean? In deep, like I was running things for the Mexican mafia on the streets. Okay. Heavily it, involved with the cartels, and I had the best of both worlds. Yep. So does that mean just running drugs? Um, running drugs and running the streets with the gangs. The okay. Mexican mafia runs the prison system, which in turn runs the gangs, which run the streets. Wow. So I was, I was a bridge between the prisons and the cartels and the streets. So I was making major money, major moves. And it was just, I was at the pinnacle. I was at the top of the world. Was your wife concerned? You know? 
She was, but she's from Mexico. So there's a lot of things she didn't understand. Yeah. There's a lot of things that were new to her. And I just took advantage of that big time. And you're probably making good money. And she's like, well, you're providing for us. Yeah. But I also had a job. I had a really good job. So it's not like I wasn't doing anything and the money was just coming in from the sky, you know? Then we, we opened up a couple of businesses, um, smoke shops of all things, you Mm -hmm. know, smoke shops. Uh, uh, and, um, yeah, man. Eventually, things started happening in the, in the neighborhood again. My name started ringing. The authorities found out I was back. They set me up and they caught me. Okay. And I and I went and I went to jail. But the good thing is that, I mean, it was good for me at the time. The cops that had arrested me, they kept all the money that we got arrested with. Mm-hmm. They didn't report any of it. So we're talking almost two hundred eighty-five thousand dollars cash that wasn't reported. Wow. So when it came time to go to court, they didn't show up to court to testify against me. Wow. So it was good news for me because I ended up walking for that. But when I got arrested, I had a gun on me and more dope. So I ended up doing about a year for that. Um, And then I started using drugs. Wow. Then I was no longer just selling drugs. I was using drugs and I got hooked on them pretty bad, making a lot of dumb mistakes and just poor choices. Um, my wife starts going to this Christian church, you know, with some of her friends. Um, and, and I, I didn't like them cause they were always smiling. Yeah. And I was like, why, why are you guys, why are you laughing? Why, why, what's so funny? Why are you laughing at me? You know, right. I would come later to find out that that was actually the joy of the Lord. You know, yeah, amen. they weren't laughing at me. Um, they would go into my house and eat up all my food. So I really disliked her Christian friends. Yep. Um, but when I got out of jail, the second to the last time, I really wanted to change my life. So I started going to church, but they didn't really receive me well, ball-headed, tattoos, you know, and um, I didn't really fit into their their church scene, uh, but I got baptized. Uh, I tried to make an effort and then quickly fell away. Ended up going back to jail again um, for something. It was They were trying to strike me out. Are you familiar with the three strikes law? Not really. It's it's Is, is it state or is that federal or is that a state law? State. State. Okay. Yep. So what it is, is your third federal, your third, your third uh, felony, they're trying to give you 25 to life for being a career criminal. Gotcha. So they were trying to strike me out and give me life. Um, but by the grace of God, I was given like four years, eight months. Uh, I did half of that. While I'm in prison doing my, you know, two and a half years, I bump into a guy. I've been, I've been shot seven times. I've been stabbed 18 times. I bump into one of the guys that had me shot, that shot me, and I shot him, and we each had each other stabbed in prison. So we met up in the same prison, and we were going to end up moving in the same cell. Wow. But only one of us was going to walk out for breakfast in the morning. That's the situation that I talked about in the video right. where I said I was put in a predicament, and I asked God to remove me from that situation. Yep. So I had already been going to church. I had gotten baptized, fell away, and I found myself getting on my knees at night crying out to God. And pulled, I think I said I pulled the getting on them in my video. I said yes. I pulled the getting on them and said, if you were real, I need you to get me out of this situation. And that was it. I, if I moved into the cell with this guy, either he, only he or I was going to walk out for breakfast on right. Sunday morning. Right, right. And I found myself praying at night on my knees, crying out to God. Like, I don't want to kill him. I don't want to be killed. I just want to go home. I want to be a, a father. I want to be a husband. I just want to be a normal person. Right. And the day before the cell move was going to happen, there was a, like a major institutional shift within this. I think there was a riot, a, a racial riot in the prison system. 
and I was literally physically removed from that situation. Wow. So that day I picked up my Bible and I have not put it down since. Man. So was that just a coincidence that you guys were at odds and the and the authorities were going to make you guys cellmates or or No, the... we asked for it. Oh, so you could he, settle the score or whatever. Yeah, he asked for it and I approved it. I see. So he told he told the correctional officers that we were that we were good friends. I see. So we wanted we wanted we wanted to be housed together. Yep. And they asked me and I was like, "Yeah, definitely." And then afterwards I was like, "Oh shoot, what are we doing?" Like, oh, like, "Oh, wow. You know, this is like the reality of it started to set in." Yeah. You know? so, so, man, can I ask you about just like prison culture real quick? Because like everybody, yeah. everybody, um, you know, we see movies and you see documentaries like world's toughest prisons and all that stuff. Um, and you never really know if, if you've never experienced that kind of thing, like what's real, what's sensationalized, you know. Yeah. Um, how would you describe your experience? I mean, for me, I was at the top of the food chain, so it was great for me. I had whatever I wanted in there, you know? I, I was the one that, that ran the show wherever I was at. I mean, I was, there was always somebody over me, but it was, it was cool for me. It didn't stop, it, it didn't, it, it stopped being cool once I was, I had a wife and kids. Yeah. But up until then, it was always like, like a little vacation. I was around my friends. I was in my element, like, you know, the only thing we didn't have was women. Everything else we had, we had drugs, we had alcohol, we had. How do you get that stuff you know? in? With the correctional officers. <laughs> like, is it like a bartering thing, like a negotiation with them, or? I mean, sometimes I mean, it was all it all come down to money. I mean, there's guys. Everybody in prison has cell phones right now. They I get didn't... them from the guards. You know, the the guard will pay give somebody a prepaid cell phone that cost them a hundred bucks. They'll sell it for a thousand. It's a big money maker for them. So, it, so in one sense, like everybody's corrupt. Is that what you're saying? I don't want to say. Well, well, it depends. My reform self will say yes. Total depravity. We're all corrupt, right? <laughs> but, but I'm not. I am not saying that all law enforcement are corrupt. No, no, no. I mean, but like in your experience with with prison uh, officials, not that they're all corrupt, but like it's not hard to get what you want from people that are in charge. No, not at all. Interesting. Sometimes they'll do it. Sometimes they'll do it for the sake of of an alliance where they know that they can have somebody on their side that if things start to get crazy, they can approach this Mexican, this black, this white, this Asian to try and calm their people down. So it's actually in their benefit, you know? Yeah. One thing I did, I have heard um, is that the prison system is just rigidly segregated. Is that true? Yes. So like, it's all about gangs and either you're, if you're not in a gang, you're just, and, and it's not even ju- and it's not even just gangs. It's racial, right? It, it's racial. You know, it's Mexican, and it's and Mexicans are segregated from each other. You have Mexicans from Northern California that beef against Mexicans from Southern California. You have blacks, Crips, and Bloods. You have Aryans. Yep. You have the Asians. You know, and and people form alliances. But it's before it's gangs. It's racial. Gotcha. And then with and then within the races, you have. Um, Give me a second. Within the races, can you see me? Yep, I got you. Okay, I was getting a call and it kind of blanked my screen. Good. It's all good. Um, yeah, man. So, so you didn't you didn't live under uh, like you hear a lot of people in prison like just this fear, just this debilitating fear. But for you, it wasn't that. No, I never, I never had fear until the last time I was in prison when I, when I I knew either I was gonna die 
or I was gonna have to kill somebody right. and then end up spend the rest of my life in jail. Yep, I got you. So you start reading your Bible and- So I start reading my Bible. But like, let me ask and you this, what was your impression of Christians before your conversion? They were weak. Okay. They were weak because in prison, a lot of guys would become Christian in order to avoid the prison politics. Yep. In order to, to avoid being involved in somebody having to get dealt with, which was usually getting stabbed or getting beat up, people would claim like, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm a newborn Christian. I'm, I'm, I'm on team Jesus now. So leave me out of the mess. Yep. And so they were all looked upon as, as being weak. Yep. You know, that, yep. that was my impression of Christians. They were weak. So you have your Gideon moment. And was it like, talk us about uh -huh. the, 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 talk us about the, the, the process of your conversion. Cause I think that's really fascinating. So I start, I start reading my Bible, but before I was able to like really embrace my Christian faith, because I was reading the same Bible I had read, you know, the same Bible stories and narratives that I have read my whole life. Every time I was in jail, there'd always be a Bible in the cell and I'd read it, but it was, it never made sense. But now it's like the words are just jumping up at me and it's like, it's all making sense. It's all, it's starting to speak to me. I'm, it's like Saul where the scales fell off and I was actually being able to see for the very first time things that have always been there. And, um, but before I was able to really live into that, I was dealing with my own identity crisis. I didn't know who I was anymore. Yeah. You know, I had grown up as this fat, lame kid who had to reinvent himself to be this tough guy, spends his whole, you know, life trying to build up this facade and who's trying to, to have the world believe he is. And then I have to leave that behind and go to Mexico, assume a different identity, right? Yep. Yep. And then build that up. And, and right when I'm doing that for about five or six years, I end up coming back and have to assume my old identity again right. and trying to figure out how all that come together. And then I become a Christian in prison and I have no idea who the heck I am anymore. Yep. I felt like, 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 like a coward, the same way I used to look at Christians as being cowards before. Now I was looking at myself like, man, I'm a coward. Yep. You know? And I remember writing to my wife and telling her that I didn't think that I would be able to protect her anymore because I was a coward. Mm. And she said, actually, that's the bravest thing. That's the bravest thing that you've ever done mm -hmm. is, is, mm -hmm. is to sever all your ties with the gang and put me and the kids first. Amen. And, and I was, I was reading the Bible. Then I started to realize who I really was. I was a beloved son of the most high. Yep. I was chosen. I was elect. I was, I was adopted into this beautiful family now to where even while I was still his enemy, like Christ died for me. That's how God showed his love for us, you know? And I was forgiven. I, I was pardoned. I, I, I was beloved. And, and all these things were starting to happen to me to let me know who I really was. Right. And so, who I was in Christ. Yep. So I'm just fascinated by people's conversions because um, my, my conversion was... Uh, I was raised in a Christian home. I've never really known the non-Christian life um, in terms of like a, 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 a switch that was kind of turned on that I yeah. was aware of like before and after. So you start reading your Bible. Did you feel like there's something different or was, was it real gradual or did you know like, man, I'm a Christian now and something's really different? What, do, what, were, your, what were your experiences? What were your emotions and feelings? So once I, once I got through the whole identity crisis thing, like I, I, I loved it. Like I, I love the fact that 
I was able to restart my life over again. Like I was able to hit a reset button, right? Yep. And I was able to now do all the things that I should have been doing before because Christ deserved nothing less than my best. Yep. And I, but I always felt like I was trying to catch up. Yep. Like I became a Christian at about the age of 35, 36. So I'm like, man, 35 years, like I got, I got a long ways to catch up. Amen. I hear people preaching and teaching and, and I'm used to being the guy. Sure. You know? Yep. So now I'm trying to be the guy in, in, in the Christian world, you yep. know, yep. not for myself, but because I know I still have influence, but now I'm trying to use that influence to push people towards Christ that they might experience the peace that I have now. Amen. You know? Amen. Um, I think one of the advantages that I had to becoming a Christian in prison, Zach, is that I noticed a lot of people that, that come from my kind of background, when they become Christians, they have a hard time because they still have to deal with all their junk from the past. Right. But while I was in prison, I was introduced to this, this ministry called Celebrate Recovery. And it's Celebrate Recovery Inside. So I'm doing like a 12-step program and doing deep reflections and and, and looking at all my baggage and all my issues, and all my character defects, and I was able to deal with them all. I had two and a half years to do, you know, so I, I was able to deal with my past while I was still in there. So when I got out, I was ready to go. So you were spent two and a half years as a Christian in prison. Yes. So that must have been weird for the prison culture, wasn't it? Super weird. To, to this day, some of my homeboys from my old neighborhood, they still can't believe that I am a Christian. So I, I did the funeral. I did the funeral for one of my homeboys last month who died from a drug overdose, heroin overdose. And everybody reached out to me that if I would do the funeral. Right. And, and how much would I charge? I'm not going to charge nothing. You just got to let me preach the gospel. They're like, do whatever you got to do. Amen. Perfect. So I sat there and I preached the gospel, which is like one of my greatest joys. Amen. I love it, man. But like when you were still in prison, you become a Christian. Didn't that affect all of your? I see the wheels. I see the wheels turning in your head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh? Yeah. So like when you were in prison, um, and become a Christian, didn't that affect while you were still in prison, like all your relationships and all the the factions and like how did you navigate that? Yeah. Well, that that's that that's where I was going through my whole identity crisis because I was no longer the guy that I used to be in there. I see. So I'm I'm, I'm trying to. To, to, to find out who I am and yep. all my worlds came colliding to one place and I had no idea who I was anymore. Yep. But as I read, as I studied, I began to know who I was and what people thought of me didn't really matter anymore. Yeah. Amen. You know, but I could tell who was talking about me because they would get, they would get nervous when I came around them. Yep. And I'm like, Oh, he's been talking about me. He, he thinks that I know what he said about me. Yep. And it, bu- it bugged me sometimes. Yep. But as, I got deeper and deeper into my faith. It mattered less and less to me what other people thought. And I learned quickly that I have an audience of one. Yep. And, and if I could please that audience of one, which in reality is three, right? But one, <laughs> then, 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 then nothing else matters. I love it. Everything, nothing else matters. You yep. know? So did you move, then you get out for the last time, you're a Christian and you move back to the same neighborhood? And back so, to the same neighborhood. So um, all your old friends, I mean, there's still probably a lot of people still around that you knew. You knew tons of people. And yeah. they must have been tripping by, like, who is this guy? And what the heck is going on with with my boy Rudy? Yeah. Everybody thought it was a phase. 
Yeah. Everybody thought it was a fad. My wife didn't believe me. My kids didn't believe me. They thought it was just prison talk that I was trying to smooth things out with my wife. Yep. So that when I got out, you know, she would accept me again and that we would be able, you know, to get back on track. And then that would eventually just revert and go back to my old lifestyle. Yep. But after about six months to a year, my family was like, Oh no, maybe, maybe this is real new creation, you know, new creation. Maybe this may, maybe yeah. Second Corinthians five seventeen. but I still had a lot of healing that I had to work on with my wife and my kids. Cause I had, I had hurt them bad, you know, and yep. it took a long, it took a long time. You know, I, I thought because I was a Christian now, everybody was going to believe me. Like, no, I had a lot of healing and a lot of hard work to try to, in Spanish, I, I want to make sure it doesn't come out the wrong way. In Spanish, you say reconquista, which means to reconquer. Right. I had to reconquer and to regain my wife's love and trust. Right. You know? Right. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense because you were out of the house for how many years of your marriage? Well, the last time it was it was two and a half years. You know. Yeah, that's hard. And and where she was a submissive woman and I was a, a, an aggressive man, it's like the roles were reversed. You know, she became this 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 motherly protector that had her talons out ready to protect herself and her children and i was this super submissive man and we just didn't understand each other anymore right yeah she's taking and, on and a new role a, yeah yeah so she she became she became mom and dad and had to be fierce to provide for the family right and, and care for them while i was absent and our roles were kind of reversed and we had to we had to get to know each other again oh man you know? yeah and you're a new person because you're a Christian and exactly. she's got to figure that out. Exactly. And, and now I was being tempted, all the temptations that I had before. And it's like, okay, it was easy to be a Christian in prison, but can you keep this up out here? Right. And seeing so many people fall away from the faith was always and I don't want to fall away further from God to pretty scary, man. Yeah. I hear that, man. That I hear that. I hear that. So how do you because go? I deserve my best. You know? Yep. So how do you go from, uh, become a Christian, move back to the neighborhood, get things, try to get things squared away with your family to now being a pastor? Like, how did that happen? Yeah. So believe me, I never planned on it. Um, I ended up at a reformed church here, not, you know, not too far away. Um, like I said in, in the video, one of the gentlemen there just took me under his arm, under his wing, and, and poured into me and discipled me. And he actually ordained me and installed me as an elder of the church while I was still on parole. Wow. While I was on parole, I, I was an elder for the church. Don't hold that against the church. I was, I was a godly man. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. <laughs> um, But um, after about a year, he had said, um, you know, our church is about church planting and I really think you should pray about planting a church. I was like, bro, I will never be a pastor, let alone a church planner. And I told him that he had to get drug tested. I said that in my video, you know, like <laughs> I will never be, I will never be a pastor, let alone a church, but ever. Yep. That, I mean, that's just not, that's not my calling. Um, but the Lord had, had different plans. So when I was at the church there, they invited me to come onto the pastoral staff um, and I said, okay, well, this is for reals, and I, I got to prepare myself. So um, I ended up going to seminary. I got my finished my bachelor's. I was, I was originally going for counseling and substance abuse because 
who better to help dope fiends than somebody who had been a dope fiend, right. you know? Um, and I finished my bachelor's and then I went to the seminary. Um, and halfway through the seminary, uh, we were taking uh, an urban, an urban church planting class and everything the professor was saying about the qualities of a church planter or those people that, you know, are, should plant churches, like everything he was saying, it's like it was made and written ex exclusively for me. So I remember calling my wife, telling her, you know what? I think the Lord is calling us to plant a church. Wow. And she said, oh, really? I said, do you see this? Because if you don't, then we'll just drop it here. And she said, I definitely see it. I said, will you, will you have my back? She's like, what does that mean? Let's talk about that, you know? Mm -hmm. And I started asking the people closest around me, like, do you see this in me? Do you? And everybody kept affirming, affirming, affirming. And I told my pastor January 2017 that I felt the Lord was calling us to plant a church. Uh, I was sent out with a small team on July 2nd, you know, six, seven months later. And we had our very first service two months after that. And you're in Watts? And we're in Linwood, which okay. is sandwiched right between Compton and Watts. Okay. So we have Linwood, and then yep. we have Compton on one side, and we have Watts on the other. Okay. <clears throat> That's to show you our demographic. What's your um, What's your demographic of your church? Our church, we are predominantly Hispanic, right? Mexican. Uh, but we're multicultural. We have Samoan families. We have black families. We have Filipino families. And we even have the, the, the last white family <laughs> in Linwood. <laughs> They're also wow. part of our church. So we're, we're predominantly Hispanic, but we're multicultural. We have a whole bunch of other uh, ethnicities that are, that are our yeah. church. Is it only uh, in English or do you have Spanish and English? So the service itself is in English. We're just getting ready to start a Spanish Bible study, which we hope and pray will develop into uh, a launch team to have a Spanish service. My wife doesn't really speak English that well. Okay. So every Sunday I have to make sure that we sit down and that she understands what, what was being preached and why. So I'm, I'm kind of biased where I really want a Spanish service and Bible study to go so that she can go on her own without me, her husband being the pastor, you know? Yep. And what is, um, what's the, like, um, the demographic, uh, I mean, how do I even say it? I don't, I don't remember the word that's politically correct. Uh, the, like the, the financial demographic, are these mainly people in poverty? Are they working class, middle class, upper class? So I would say all middle to low class, you know, okay. our, our community is, is definitely an under-resourced community. Okay. Like, you know, we're, we're like, we're in South LA, you know, like I said, sandwiched between Compton and Watts. So yep. we are definitely not in, in an affluent area at all, mm -hmm. at all. Um, and because our demographic is predominantly Hispanic, that means that maybe a third of that demographic doesn't have legal status. Gotcha. Right. So like during the pandemic, you know, the stay at home order, we, we lost a ton of money, but we were more concerned about providing for our churches and our community's needs. Those people that didn't qualify, I mentioned it in my, in my talk in the conference that didn't have status, that didn't qualify for welfare or the, so the stimulus, the federal stimulus right. or unemployment or, or anything, you know? Yep. So how have you seen God provide in the midst of uh, a community that's um, under a lot of pressure like that? How? I'll tell you right now. We uh, start out with one church plant. We're getting ready to plant three more. Amen. So we're planting one church uh, in Wilmington, which is like we're trying to plant confessionally reformed churches in the hoods. Amen. Where people have, have left and drifted from 
we know that it's going to be a challenge because they're under resourced, but like I have two jobs outside of the church planter role. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, I work at MLK hospital in Watts right next door where um, I get paid, per, I get paid decently there. I also get my benefits, medical and, and, and health insurance for my family. Uh, I also do hospice chaplaincy, you know, and, and just, so you know, I'm also the chaplain for the LA Dodgers. Wow. Yeah. Congrats. I don't get paid for that though. That's, but that's volunteer. Congrats, that's volunteer man. Congrats. Those, are, those are treasures in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, um, yeah. So what is, uh, what are the challenges of just, um, reaching this demographic of people where you live that, cause like, I mean, I'm in Madison, Wisconsin. This is one of the most educated cities in the nation. Um, we have a lot of problems. Um, we're, we're, we're one of the most, um, uh, the, the, the distance between rich and poor is vast here. It's very, very stark. And, um, and so we definitely have problems, but, you know, I would imagine, you know, Linwood, Compton, Watts, that culture is very different from our church culture. Like we're, we're 98% white, um, yeah. upper middle class. And so we're, we're planting churches too. You know, we've, we've planted, um, two and, and we're God willing, have a church planting resident that's going to start in a few months to hopefully have a third plant. Um, but you know, we, we understand Madison and we understand our context, but most people probably don't know anything about what, it, what the challenges would be or the joys that you've experienced in planting in your area. Can you describe some of that? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, some of the challenges are that, be, so we're getting ready to plant four churches, the three more churches act with no money, Yeah, you know? Um, which is, which is a task in itself, but all of us are tent makers. So we're, we're willing to, everybody's bivocational. Yeah. Gotcha. So we're willing to do what, what needs to be done. We're not gonna let money become uh, an obstacle or hindrance to, for, for gospel ministry and kingdom work. Right. Amen. Uh, but we're always looking for churches to adopt us. So Amen. feel free to, feel free to run that up the pipeline. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's, it's happening we, right we, now. We, yeah. We have a ton of friends, you know, who see what we're doing. They love what we're doing and they are actively participating in the ministry that we're doing here in the hood through their generosity, yep. you know? Yep. Uh, and they send mission teams out here from time to time to see what we're doing. And, and they learn from us in some way to take that back home. And, and we learn from them, you know, and yep. um, it, it's amazing to see when somebody actually gets the gospel. Amen. Right. Well, one of the biggest problems and hindrances that we have here is that we all come from Roman Catholic backgrounds where nobody understands anything. It's just something that you do. Right. So we have to get people to like, we kind of have to like, like, like erase the tape of what they think and have to start all over again and correct everything along the way. It's not about what you do. Yep. It's about what Jesus did, you know, and, and, and presenting the bad news so that they would make sense of the good news and realize yeah. how big a deal it is and, and what the, what the, what the ramifications are if we don't, yep. believe, you know, yep. and, and to see families restored, to see marriages reconciled, to see kids become obedient and less rebellious. I, I think we'll always be rebellious, all of us, right. To a certain extent. Right. But, but just to see how the gospel impacts people and how their lives change, Amen. how they start to become good husbands and wives and parents and children and and you're and walking the, evidence of that yeah it's last night we were uh, at our leadership development um meeting with some of our our, our, our actual leaders and, and next generation leaders that we're preparing and 
one of the, our family, one of our, our, our leaders shared with us that she was really frustrated because she was trying to share the gospel and scripture with her family, but they didn't want to hear it. Right. And to see her with tears in her eyes, like she wanted them to get it so bad because she understands it. I'm starting to get choked up. Yeah. Like to see people really understand and want their family to get it. And she was saying, Reverend Rudy, how do you do it? Because I never hear you talking about your family. And I'm like, my family kind of abandoned me when I became a Christian. Wow. You know, they don't want to have nothing to do with me. They'll, they'll tolerate me from time to time, but I don't get invited to things, you wow. know? And it's because the message that I represent is offensive to their lifestyle, mm -hmm. you know? So to see people get it and be so passionate about wanting their loved ones to get it is amazing. Yes. You know, sometimes I want to bang my head against the wall. Like, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Right. Right. But then to see people get it, it like totally makes it all worth it. Amen. You know? I would imagine your testimony of where you've been and how you were raised that you would run across guys frequently where you get to tell your story. Like I've lived the life that you're currently living and let me tell you there's a better way. Or am I assuming too much there? No, you're, you're not assuming that's exactly it. So one, one of the things about me, as we were getting ready to plant this church, there was, there was a, a, a beautiful group of people in Tampa Bay that had, ex, that were extending me a call mm -hmm. to come out and, 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 and be their pastor. And my family and I wrestled through that like quite a bit, you know, materialistically speaking, we would have had a maid to go to Tampa Bay. Yep. So it's like on one hand, go into the hood, plant a church, start all over again, not have any idea where we're going to get money from, how we're going to provide, how we're going to make things work or go across the country and help step into an established church that has money, that has people that has their own building. But I was like, I just, what good is my story going to do over there? Where would it have more impact? I knew there wasn't a right or wrong. Right. It was just the where where would I be most impactful for the gospel? Yes. And it was staying right here in my backyard where people who know me see the change. Yep. And they would see the transformative power of the gospel live and direct, not because of me, but because of Jesus, and that they would want that. Yep. Amen. That that they would want to see their lives changed. Yeah. Man. So uh are there can you share a story of any type of those any type of conversation like that where where you've interacted with somebody either from your old way of life or someone that's you can is clearly running the life that you used to run and you had a chance to talk to them about that? Yeah, I, I do it every day at the hospital. So I'm 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 a cha I'm you know gotcha. I'm, I'm a chaplain at MLK Hospital and Watts right next door, and there's people that are still involved in my old lifestyle. Yep, you know. And I don't know how much I could say specifically about cases, but I've had two of my patients that are that are coming to my church, yep. you know, that, that were looking for a church. I need to come to a church. And once I was able to share with them a part of my story, they were able to connect and they were like, that, that, that's what I want. I want that Jesus. Yep. yep. You know? Yep. Is your neighborhood. And, and let me, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. And, and, and it gets, it gives me a chance to accurately portray who Jesus is. Amen. Not, not some hippie Jesus, you know, peace, love, and, you know, come as you are, stay as you are, no repentance, no, right. no, no call to holiness, none of that stuff, but, but a real Jesus, you know? Yeah. Is, would you say your, your neighborhood has evolved in any significant way since, since you were a teenager or is it, I mean, I'm sure it's evolved, but like, how has it evolved? Is it just as rough? Is it not quite as rough? Is it, uh, what, what's, what are the. Yeah. So it's, it's still rough. 
<clears throat> it's not as rough, right, as it was back then, but it's still rough. Like, it's, it's not a cakewalk to live around here, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, I live three blocks away from my church. I live one block away from one of the biggest prostitution tracks in all of Southern California. I will not let my wife and daughter or, or daughter walk our dog down the street. Wow. Because there could be a white commercial van right there and snatch them in and they get caught in, 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 in sex trafficking. You know what yep. I mean? Yep. Like I, I don't, I don't let my son just take off with anybody and he's 18 years old now, you know? Um, so the, the, the community has evolved. It's getting better. And, and to know that our little church is helping make an impact here, but we've got great relationships with the city council, with the soup, the school district, with parks and rec and like, Everybody loves us. Yep. You know, we, we have no ulterior motive. We just want to help make this place better. I want them to trust us because if they trust us, then they will trust our message. Amen. And that's that, that that's the only thing that I'm worried about. Yeah, trust is currency, man. Exactly. Yeah, that's really good. That's really good. Well, man, I'm going to let you go, but this has been a, an amazing conversation. And I just really want to say we appreciate um, you just taking the time to share your story. And this is going to mean a lot to a lot of people at my church, uh, just because it's a different culture. And, and we love being exposed to uh, cultures that are different from our own. We're really into missions and we're really into um, trying to be as welcome as we can to diverse people. And part of that is just learning people's story. And so yeah. I, uh, I really appreciate your story. I appreciate you hearing about what God has done in your life. It's super encouraging yeah. to me, you know, to, to, to know that, you know... I think for me, sometimes I really love to hear conversion stories because, yeah. you know, conversion hasn't happened as much here as we would have liked. Like we moved here 10 years ago to plant a church and we're like, man, we're just going to, God's going to convert all these people. And it's like, well, he, we can't really control him or that. Yeah. Um, but sometimes you can struggle and think like, does God still convert people? And I hear your story. I'm like, yeah, he does. He does. Oh, yeah. And, um, he's still in business. He's very much in business. <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs> you know? Amen. Um, we'll, we'll know that you have some urban missionary friends here yeah. in the heart of LA yeah. that, that, that would love to, to stay connected to you guys, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. E yo quiero uh, hablar español también. Cuando gustes, hermano, aquí estoy la orden para servir. No comprendo, pero uh, yo estudio cada día. Y uh, yo viajo um, en Ecuador cada día, dos meses cada día. Y tenemos... Uh, cada año. Pa- cada para año. año. Para año. Yeah. Pa- not, every, yeah. not twice a day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I have a oh, deep... Man, lo- you must have Zoom calls every day for a couple hours. <laughs> Yeah. No, man, I love the Spanish too. I, I really want to be lingual, uh, be bilingual someday. And I want to be able to teach in, in Spanish for what we do in Ecuador. And so well, um, feel free to come out here one day and, and, and learn how we, the Mexican American culture does it here. Yeah. Um, in LA. I would love to, I would love to, man. So well, dude, thank you so much, uh, Rudy. And, uh, I appreciate it. I hope our paths can cross again, maybe at a conference or something. Amen. Amen. How can I be praying for you and your church and your family? Oh man, thank you for asking. You know what? It's uh, it's been a hard year for everybody. Obviously, I mean that's a cliche at this point, but um, I think just probably making decisions as leaders, you know, is is challenging right now when you have just pressure. Um, there's political pressure, political tension. There's there's a lot of um, tension just racially in our in our community, um, and then the COVID tension. You know, everybody's got a conviction. And, yeah. uh, it, that, that can be kind of exhausting. 
um, to, to just kind of bear the weight of that. It's not the hardest thing in the world, but it's definitely been the strangest year of pastoral ministry um, for us as elders, for sure. So that would probably be it, man. I will add that to my list, Zach. I appreciate that, brother. I appreciate that so much. Cool, man. Well, thank you so much, dude. And uh, yeah, it's been a, it's been a, a, an absolute pleasure to hear from you and, and talk to you. And um, hopefully we can maybe do it again. Amen. Thanks for taking an interest in what God is doing uh, through our little church here and my family here in Linwood. Yep. Um, and yeah, th- thanks for, for you willing to shed some light. I love it. I love it. All right. Uh, mi hermano, uh, we'll uh, see you later, okay? Dios te bendiga, hermano. Hasta okay. luego. Gracias.